Welcome to Citizens Midweek. It's a podcast for our church family in Charlotte, North Carolina, where we take a deeper look at each week's sermon. My name is Jacob Kirby. I'm your host, joined this week by our pastor and friend, Tim Olson. Here we go. This week at The Gathering, we continued on in our fall series on the fruit of the Spirit in the time of the flesh. We were in week three this week, particularly looking at the fruit of joy. Um, the sermon was titled Joy in a Time of Cynicism. Um, and we looked at John chapter 16, verses 16 through 22, and also verse 33, and just kind of talked about um, cynicism and what the Bible means as the antidote to cynicism and what the real antidote is, not just maybe what our culture might say that it is. So we talked specifically as well about kind of our cultural um, responses to to hardship in life. We talked about um, two cycles, the cynicism cycle and the optimism cycle, and how those are kind of cycles that we kind of are placed in um, when when the world around us tried to figure out a response to life apart from Jesus. And so we talked about the cynicism cycle being um, we have certain expectations as humans on how life's going to go. We, whether we intend to or not, we set expectations for what we think is going to come our way. And then we're met with the reality of life where sometimes it's not what we expected. Sometimes it's harder than we expected. So when reality is worse than our expectations, we're led into a, a period of kind of despair and and um, frustration or, or disappointment. And our disappointment when reality does not match our expectations ultimately leads us to, to developing a cynical worldview that expects bad things to happen, that expects no good things to come, that expects things to be worse than we want them to be. And that's kind of the cynicism cycle. Um, if that's not your tendency, maybe your tendency was the other one, which is the optimism cycle, which is starts off the same when reality does not meet our expectations. Some people might respond with a little bit of naivety, a little bit of kind of blissful ignorance by choice, um, and they might respond, you know, their naivety might lead them to respond with kind of blind optimism, a bit of kind of this seemingly very Christian, like, oh, well, things are going to get better. Things are going to be better one day. God's going to make all things work out. Sorry it was so hard, but don't worry. God's using it for something. Um, and we kind of talked about how n- neither of those are really the options that, that we've been given in Christ as people that walk in the Spirit. Um, instead, we talked about having defiant joy. Joy is defined by the Bible, um, joy in a time of cynicism. So um, kind of talked about what it meant for for Jesus to be joyful in a, in a time of a lot of suffering and joyful in the face of a lot of obstacles and adversity. And um, yeah, diving into John 16 and just talking about joy in that way and kind of introduced um, the disciples cycle is to be a cycle of joy instead. So the joy cycle, when reality does not meet our expectations, um, the Christian that's trying to follow Jesus has hope in the middle of suffering and, and obstacles and despair. They have hope in the midst of reality, not matching their expectations and our hope that God is doing something to reconcile all things, our hope that God is going to work all things together for the good of those called according to his purposes, our hope that God is restoring what is broken. Our hope leads us to defiant joy, joy in the midst of suffering, joy in the midst of hardship and trial and sinfulness and all those things. So um, joy is a product of our hope in Jesus. And and that's kind of what the sermon was on this week. Lots of details that I left out for the sake of time. But if you want to listen to it, we record those sermons. Feel free to take a listen. Um, It's on Spotify or anywhere else. But I think in particular, it's hard for me to say this week what is one thing in particular that stood out because I just think in general, Uh, a response to cynicism stood out to me because I think I've seen a little bit of cynicism in my life just in this season um, for a lot of different reasons. Um, 
I think for me, I probably would lead on, you know, in cynicism, just kind of leaning towards the idea that like, oh, it's always going to be this hard tuck in, strap in, whatever kind of. And that's kind of my response to when my expectations don't line up with reality. Um, so my cynicism cycle that I definitely fall in is very much like it's always going to be this way. It's never going to be better, but probably some element of like, but it's going to be worth it in the end, but it's certainly not going to be enjoyable along the way. So just kind of expect to be heard, expect to be disappointed, expect to be frustrated. Um, so I think a little bit of, you know, navigating what it means not for us to be cynical or optimistic, but to instead um, have joy that comes from our hope. I just think in general was really timely and fruitful for me. And I think we'll have a lot of good conversations in our group this week. But um, what about you, Tim? Anything in particular that kind of stood out while you were preparing for this week's sermon? Yeah, I think uh, two things. I think number one is just the pervasiveness of cynicism in the world that we live in. Uh, I mean, just there was no lack of quotes from celebrities, from uh, philosophers, from politicians, from all these different kinds of people. people and different careers and different walks of life. And I think just the pervasive sense in which like cynicism just reigns in our day. And so, I mean, we use the Frank Zappa quote where, you know, the 1970s uh, druggy musician guitarist who, who talks about uh, cynicism is the only response that we can have to uh, the 20th century, right? We can't just swallow it whole. But another one that did, didn't make the sermon, but I thought was really fascinating uh, was from Stephen Colbert everyone's favorite uh, late-night talk show political analyst. He says this. He says, Young people who purport to be wise to the ways of the world are mostly just cynical. Cynicism is not wisdom. Cynicism is a self-imposed blindness. You put the blinders on yourself to protect yourself from a world you think will hurt or disappoint you. And then he says this, Stephen Colbert. He says, Be a fool. Believe things will be good. And it's interesting because we would argue as Christians, like, as actually believing things will be good is not foolishness. It's actually deeper godly wisdom and hope that things might not be good here in the now, but we see evidences in the darkness of the light of the presence of God, that he is working, that he is redeeming, and that one day he will make all things good, very good, back to their shalom, back to their flourishing. And so I think uh, that was a big thing, just a pervasive sense of cynicism. Uh, and then I think the other thing that, that really stuck out to me um, was just the sense in which joy uh, does involve our emotions and does involve our feelings. I think, you know, growing up in church, the way I would hear it talked about a lot, and I even thought, even going into studying for this sermon, was joy and happiness are opposed to each other. Like, they're not opposed, but they're they're different, right? They're like, different, happiness yeah, different is trees. This, yeah, yeah. Th- they're different things. Like, happiness is different. It's this feeling. It's this kind of emotional response to the moment, and joy is more of this uh, deep-rooted, um, overwhelming uh, sense of solidity. And I think just continually reading different theologians, seeing the examples in, in scripture, seeing the example of Christ and his embodiment of joy is that while joy is not just an emotional response, it does certainly involve our emotions, that it's not separate from, that there is a sense in which joy has to at some point be a response of celebration, that it's not enough to just have hope. It's not enough to just say, this is what I'm going to be, you know, kind of this tight gripped, stern looking, uh, eye of joy type of mentality, but at some point joy has to overwhelm us to the point of a feeling, an emotional response, a, a response of celebration. That's why I think, you know, Piper's definition where he says that joy is a good feeling or Dallas Willard where he says, um, gosh, what is, uh, 
Dallas Willard where he says joy is a uh, pervasive sense of well-being. Like there is some amount of emotional response to hope giving way to joy right. in our lives. Yeah. I think it was interesting too, even in teaching team preparing for this sermon, we asked you uh, last week, it seems like you're kind of equating some level hope and joy. Like, are you intending to do that? And then kind of the conversation we had around that was like, yes, a little bit, yeah. because we're like, yeah, they're pretty linked to one another about like, we have joy because of our hope. We have hope in the things that we joyfully expect. Like, um, and even then, like that whole conversation too, just led to like, I think for some reason, I don't know why, like sometime in our adolescence, like when we were probably all teenagers, there was like a gamut, like this, this like pervasive idea just kind of soaked through like Southern evangelicalism where a bunch of pastors really felt the need to disassociate joy and happiness. Mm. I don't know if you heard a sermon like that growing yeah. up, oh, but yeah. I definitely mm -hmm. did. And we grew up in very different contexts, but like for some reason that was like some hot topic. Yeah. And I'm sure there was some perceived fruitfulness there at the time that I just don't remember. But now we're doing a little bit of like deconstructing and reconnecting of like, well, we heard that and it certainly sounded effective when I was 16, but is it really the best way to say what the Bible's trying to say here? That we don't feel anything when we're joyful? Like that it was almost like joy is like this really like clenched jawed, like I'm going to make it, you know, like whatever. Yeah. And it's like, well, yeah, sure. Like that's, I think that's endurance and discipline and stuff, but yeah, does, is there an element of emotion behind it? And our emotion isn't everything, but just like reclaiming that it can be both and not just an either or. Yeah. And just thinking about, I mean, throughout the book of Isaiah in particular, just the references to gladness and just the references to like the people of God being happy like being full of glad like i remember singing a song uh growing up in church uh, i don't know if you sang this one and there's always there's a lot of clapping uh but it was that he has made me glad he has made me you know and it was literally the entire song was just about the fact that jesus has made us happy and i think you know there's the wrong way of doing that there's the the hype train there's the like you know uh i heard somebody on a podcast a few weeks ago say uh that some churches uh Worship is the equivalent of the adult spiritualized version of if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. Oh, gosh. Like that's what they're doing. It's like they just they yeah. like they only think the proper. Which is response. definitely on the optimism cycle which side. Which is the yeah. yeah is the too far. But there is a sense in which like especially in our circles, right, in these kind of uh, like the circles that we dwell in as far as church planting and church culture and those types of things, there can almost be an over like too much to the default to where it's like, no, we are the total depravity group. Like we're the reformed, uh, you know, the the joke on it is like the frozen the chosen frozen or whatever, chosen. where it's like happiness is bad. And we're I think going, faithful and very depressed yeah, like, all the I, time. And I think, you know, obviously the Bible gives a full weight to uh, depression and sorrow and lament in the Christian life. Like that's a whole category. We have to be like, some people need to be willing to do that. Others of us need to go like, Hey, the Bible actually calls us to gladness. It actually calls us to joy. It talks about the rivers of God. Uh, I think about, you know, Matthew five, Jesus's longest, most famous sermon. And he starts it out by saying, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And that word bless can be translated as flourishing, but it can also be translated as happiness and glad. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy. And Jesus is, you know, in all of Matthew 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, he's giving his vision for the good life, for human flourishing. And part of that vision is happiness. Part of that vision is gladness. I even think about like the you know, future eternity with Jesus, new heavens and new earth. Like that's going to be full of Happiness. We will enjoy Joy, it. Joy, <laughs> smiles, laughter. Um, because after all, like that's the life of Jesus, which I think even is spoiler alert for what we're about to talk about. Yeah, well, it might sound obvious, but like words associated with joy, 
enjoy <laughs> yeah rejoice rejoice mm-hmm. like those are all associated words i just think for us and then in the sermon because i think in our in our church family we'll find a lot of people in both of those categories the optimism oh, yeah. cycle or cynicism cycle i would just say like maybe kind of question yourself if you've accidentally in an attempt to be faithful of your own accord have you demonized the opposite experience a little bit of like for the cynic which is me hello if you're a cynic you're in my camp <laughs> um have i have I demonized joyfulness as um, shallow emotionalism? Oh, yeah. Have oh, yeah. I demonized um, joy or enjoyment as um, naivety, you know, uh, elementary thinking or something? But also for the optimist cycle, have you demonized grief and despair and sadness as an inherent sign of unfaithfulness? Because I think that's part of what I see in the optimism cycle too. It's like, if everything's always supposed to be good and feel good and feel joyful, when you don't, you're immediately in like a camp of, oh, I've been unfaithful and I don't even follow Jesus. Like, yeah. I don't yeah. even know God at all if I feel this way. And yeah. it's like, well, maybe not, maybe no to both of those. <laughs> like, yeah. maybe there's somewhere in the middle where we will experience the gamut and there's a way for us in hope to pursue moving forward regardless. But And we said this from the beginning, but fruit, the fruit of the Spirit are not dispositions right right they're not personality traits and there's going to be some of us i i by nature am optimistic like i've been accused of i i very rarely have been accused of being cynical like i just by default is hope and optimism and that's my disposition that's my temperament and i say oh tim you're so nice right (laughs) but i have to be careful to not think that that's a one-for-one fruit right 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 like is is my is it is it optimism is it uh that's just my natural disposition my personality or is it actually deep-rooted hope in christ that's leading me to joy just like you know for some of us we are naturally by nature patient people and for some of us it's we're talking right. i mean i'm thinking about this for a few weeks from yeah. now some of us are we think it's patience we really it's passivity and apathy sure but our disposition might be to be more uh slow to anger and more long suffering and we think it's a fruit when really it's a disposition and so we really have to go back and ask ourselves what is the root going on that is leading to this is it of the spirit or is it uh, a temperament and a personality now the temperament could mean it's easier for us it is easier for me to have the fruit of joy um but i also have to look and go okay is that of the world or is that of the spirit yeah that's really good and finding out you know what christ offers in the middle of both of those to the cynics in your life and to the optimists in my life like yeah how can we follow jesus together and to i mean even to your point like we have to have space to hold both emotions and both emotional responses for the people that we walk life with right like the the person who defaults and leans more into that joy of the Lord, all of that kind of like they have to hold space for the lamenter and for the weeper and the weeper and lamenter also has to hold space and not look down upon like you were saying with, uh, Oh, that's, that's new spiritual fervor or, Oh, well, that person's just excited to worship because everything is good in their life. Like yeah. we can't, you don't know. Cause you haven't been hurt. Yeah. Yet. <laughs> so we can't, we can't ostracize the other. We have to give space to uh, the full gamut of emotions because our savior experienced the full gamut of our emotional responses. What are we going to dive deep on this week, Tim? Yeah, I want to look a little bit more into uh, just the joy and happiness of Jesus. So a lot of this uh, got cut just for for time and, and the sake of wanting to really narrow down into terms of hope and joy and the joy cycle and all of that. Um, but sometimes we can get really faulty views of how Jesus lived his life on the earth. Um, part of this is uh, because of TV shows and because of movies and because of uh, pop culture kind of showing Jesus in a certain light. Um, we can have these really weird ideas of who Jesus was, and some of the ways that we can deny his humanity include uh, denying the fact that he uh, had joy 
and had happiness and was committed to joy and happiness. And really, it comes from, I think, a, a wrong reading of Isaiah 53. Right, so Isaiah 53 talks about uh, how Jesus was despised and rejected by man, a, a man, a man of sorrow and well acquainted with grief. Right, and we have examples of that. Uh, John 15, right, when Lazarus passes away, like you see Jesus mourning and crying. You have uh, the cross, right, Golgotha for Pete's right. sake. Like, yeah, this is real, like sorrow and suffering. But we also have a lot of examples of joy surrounding the life of Jesus. So, I mean, just to give us a, a few to talk about, um, Luke 1 and 2. Uh, Jesus arrives on the scene, is born to Mary in Bethlehem in a manger, and angels show up in the middle of the night to a group of shepherds, and their very first thing that they say is, we have good news of great joy. So even the announcement of Jesus' birth has to do with joy. Uh, And then you have Matthew 3. Jesus... uh, you know, he grows up as a carpenter. He learns uh, the way of of God and his laws, and he, he learns all of this stuff from different rabbis and different teachers. He learns a trade from his dad, and then he's about to enter into his public ministry at the age of 30. And in Matthew 3, we have his, his baptism. And Jesus, before he does any ministry, goes to John the Baptist in the wilderness. He's baptized, and when he comes out of the water, it's this beautiful Trinitarian moment. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and God the Father speaks from heaven, and this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So even the beginning of Jesus' ministry is marked by deep delight of his Father, deep joy of even though um, he has come to earth and taken on flesh and lowered himself, he still is experiencing deep delight in his Trinitarian union to God, in his sonship to God. Um, John 2, Jesus' very first miracle, right? The very first miracle that Jesus does, he turns water into wine at a wedding. He enables a celebration. He points forward to a future wedding feast through a miracle at a current wedding feast. And it's this really this sign, overwhelmingly, theologians talk about of the reason why this was Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, is it was a pointing forward to abundance and feasting and flourishing and joy that was coming with the proclamation of the kingdom of God. And so uh, a few other examples, uh, Luke 7. One of the accusations that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and Sadducees, make about Jesus is that they call him a glutton and a drunkard. Basically, they're like, this Jesus guy, he, uh, he, they accuse him of eating too much and drinking too much, which is just like, this is Jesus. And they're like, no, he's a glutton and a drunkard. He's, he's hanging out too much with sinners, eating too much, drinking too much, which we know, you know, Jesus was perfect. So he never got drunk. He never abused alcohol. He never abused food, anything like that. But the accusation is that Jesus is having too much fun. Right. Which is like, that's crazy to think about the son of God, uh, who we picture as this stern, serious. And he's like, no, this is the accusation is that he's he's enjoying life too much. Um, And then you have John 15, right, where Jesus right before the passage we looked at on Sunday, Jesus tells his disciples, abide in me that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Uh, And then Matthew 6, where I talked about the sermon or Matthew 5, the Sermon on the Mount, like Jesus is just committed to joy in his life, flourishing in his own life, which then leads to joy and flourishing in others. Uh, And so I think about just like, yeah, the birth of Jesus is marked by joy. The life of Jesus is marked by joy and the death and resurrection, even in the suffering is marked by joy. He was 12 too. And that's, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And I'm glad you just brought it up. I thought Hebrews 12 too, for me in the sermon, especially was like this really clear picture of the juxtaposition of what it's like to be joyful in the midst of like, where's the middle between cynicism and optimism? Cause it's not just feel good. Ignorance is bliss. It's not just everything's going to suck because we see in Hebrews 12, Jesus endured the cross because of his joy. Like the joy that he had didn't lead him to blind naivety. It led him to being able to competently step into suffering, you know, and that's, he suffered 
well because of the joy set before him, which I think without that passage, we don't have nearly as clear of a picture of what it means to live in the tension of the two. Um, but Jesus did it. He was he was so filled with joy, which is fueled by the hope he had in what God was doing, that he submitted to suffering. And I, yeah, I just don't know if I have that kind of work for myself nearly as often as I maybe should. But Yeah, and he... I think the living with the tension of the two, like you were talking about, I heard, I heard a pastor a few years ago say um, that when Jesus came to earth, the number one thing he was committed to, even more than salvation of sinners, even more than love of us, the number one thing Jesus was committed to was his joy. And he knew that his joy was in the salvation yeah. of the enemies And in of God. doing the will of the Father. And yeah. in doing the will of the Father. I do nothing apart from which I see him doing. And so I think, like, even that, like, Jesus going to the cross as a commitment to him and his Father's joy, uh, that death would be defeated, that Satan would be defeated, that uh, sin would be defeated, and that many would come to put their faith in him and live forever with God. And that that ultimately is for our joy, but it's also for the joy of the Father, right? God's kindness leads us to repentance. God delights. I mean, you have this picture of uh, Luke 15, right? The prodigal son, like the delight of God when sinners return home, right? This celebration, this feasting, this leaving the 99 to seek out the one, like how much joy, and that's not like a uh, me being a, like a heretic or me saying like me trying to like humanize God, but it's like God experiences joy in that. Like there's joy in the lost returning home. Well, isn't the opposite of being true? It's not that God experiences a human emotion, but it's that we experience a piece yeah. of what God is like when we experience Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. It just, that makes me think too, just about, I mean, something that's really challenging to me for me. Like I'm saying this because it's convicting of like, am I competent enough in what, who God is and what, what God delights in and what God rejoices in that I'm willing to submit to things that the world might not agree is delightful. Mm. If it means doing what God has said will mm. bring joy and righteousness and all those things. Like there's a lot of things that we're Christians are called to do or to not do that the world has no concern for. And it's like, am I willing to do what non-Christians around me think is ridiculous because I'm, I have a hopeful expectation that this brings delight to God yeah. and that my joy will be completed by doing the will of my Father by doing this, yeah. whether it be repenting of certain things or committing to certain disciplines or to using our money differently, using our time differently, like saying no to things that everybody around us would otherwise say yes to. Like, Are we willing to do those things because of a competent, competent expectation and what God has called us to? Um, well, C.S. Lewis talks about that, right? With talking about, um, he goes, it's not that our our appetites are too small or are too large. It's that they're too small. Like we know nothing about the offer for us of a holiday at sea. We right? settle for way less. We settle yeah. for way less. Yeah. It's that same idea of like we, uh, we sin not because we are too committed to joy, but because we're not committed to joy enough. Uh, and we don't trust that that Matthew 5 is true, that, you know, God has a picture of flourishing. He has a picture of, of the good life. He has a design for our joy that leads to our blessing, that leads to our happiness. And I think uh, as Christians, we get small glimpses of this when we do live out uh, the way of Jesus, when we when we are really following Christ, saying no to sin. Like we, we, can, we have glimpses of that joy when we know we're walking in the will of our Father, but it's so easy to forget in those moments of temptation, in those moments of... Um, lack of belief. It's so easy to forget. Yeah. And I think just along those lines, like, yeah, I think we, 
we are we and this is this is back to like i'm pushing definitely on the side of the cynicism cycle so this is uh if you're the optimism cycle person just ignore me this doesn't apply to you um but for those of us in the cynicism cycle it's almost like as christians we can be afraid of joy like we can be afraid of delight like we, we can think that if we are enjoying things that we are doing something wrong or we're doing something off and i think just going back to like what we're talking about the c.s lewis stuff like being committed uh to our deeper joy in the lord even in the midst of suffering but also being committed to celebrate the goodness of god uh one of the practices we have for this is feasting we have a, a re- uh, resource for it, rhythmsandformation.com, where we talk about how to throw a feast and how to do that. And I think as Christians, like we don't know how to properly celebrate. We don't know how to properly enjoy the things of God, properly live into his flourishing. And so we seek lesser joys. We seek uh, fake versions of it. We seek uh, false fleeting joys that don't actually last rather than being a people deeply committed to our joy in Christ through following the design of God, following his ethic, living life after him, and then actually enjoying the good gifts. I mean, I remember I said this to a friend a few weeks ago. Um, we were just talking about flourishing in the kingdom and, and talking about joy uh, in light of getting ready for this sermon. And I just said to him like, Hey man, like God wants you to enjoy your life. Like God is not anti you enjoying your life. No, I don't mean that in the in the prosperity way. I don't mean that in the you know. So go make a bunch of money, do whatever you want for the rest of your life. Like God wants you to be happy. I don't mean it like that. That's silly. Uh, I mean in terms of like God is committed to your joy, and He knows that His design for how to get there is way better than yours. And it's gonna be hard. Like it's not like, and that's what we tried to set up. The whole sermon was about is that joy is not absent of hard. Joy is not absent of suffering. They go together and lead to one another. Ultimately, the hard leads to our joy. And so it's, that doesn't mean easy. It doesn't mean pain-free. It doesn't mean um, laissez-faire. It means a deep-rooted joy that's going to necessitate some sacrifice and suffering and all of that. Uh, but God is committed to that. I mean, that, that's the future feast. We are going to celebrate for eternity with Jesus. Uh, Jesus is committed to his joy, and he's committed to ours. Right, yeah. And it's it's a response to probably the the baptizing of cynicism, which is like, I'm cynical because I've learned from my experiences or I'm cynical because um, I just am trying to suffer well, you know, but it's like, yeah, suffering and, and cynicism, like joy still responds to those things. And God still has intentions for our joy through suffering, not in absence of our suffering. And, um, and it produces endurance in us. Yeah. I just think about, you know, some of the most mature saints of God, believers that I know that have walked with the Lord for a long time, aren't less joyful when they get to the end of their life. They're more. They enjoy the things of earth more in light of their Savior and in light of their Heavenly Father who gives good gifts. And and their life did not stop. Uh, like, the reality of their life did not always meet their expectations. Yeah. They did not stop suffering along the way to joy. Yeah. Um, they learned how to suffer well because of the joy they had in Christ. Any final thoughts for today? Yeah, uh, get the guide. Uh, citizencharlotte.com backslash teaching it's on there get the guide work on the practice guides i mean it really these are designed to be really helpful to cultivate uh we need grace and grit we got to do some stuff and so these practices are just really tangible ways to give space for the spirit of god to do the work that the spirit does which is grow us more and more into the image of christ yeah that's awesome excited for those i've heard good things about them already it's been really helpful for people that's all the time we have for this week we will catch you at the gathering on sunday at five o'clock we'll see you then